Welcome back to another episode of Writing for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the authors transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick, and I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling very uh, cozy, I guess is the word, because it's it's kind of frigid outside. I'm here in the Pacific Northwest, kind of rainy and cold as usual, but I'm tucked away in my warm home office. I have a fresh cup of Keurig coffee in front of me. Uh, don't judge. I can feel you judging me for Keurig coffee, especially because I live in the Northwest and I have access to so much good coffee. And yet I drink Keurig because it's fast and it's not that bad. So maybe we can get a sponsorship from them or something. Um, I can hear my kids in the distance uh, and hopefully they don't start shrieking and ruin the podcast. And most of all, I am excited about our guest today. Uh, his name, if, for those of you who do not know him, I'll give him a a bit of an introduction. His name is Alan Noble. And Alan wears a lot of hats. And I mean that literally <laughs> and figuratively, because like if you see pictures of him, just about every picture I've seen, he's wearing a hat. But he also does a lot of things. He's an English prof at Oklahoma Baptist University. He is the editor in chief and co-founder of Christ and Pop Culture, which is weird because I don't think Christ has anything to do with pop culture. Maybe we can talk about that later. Um, he's a speaker and author. His first book, uh, was, uh, is, I should say titled disruptive witness speaking truth in a distracted age. And it's absolutely excellent. I have some questions for him based on that book. And he has a forthcoming book, uh, uh, which is you are not your own coming out this fall. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I always say that by the way, <laughs> that's not, <laughs> You're always excited. I'm always. I don't. I don't <laughs> just that's always how I. Yeah, I'm, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Right, um, and and um, then when it comes out and you you say something on social media, you have to say, "I really enjoyed this conversation." I don't say right? that. No, no you don't say that. Okay, I just I will retweet it. I'll give you a retweet. Nice, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> that's all we ask. Maybe that's I'm still joking because of the Keurig, but uh... <laughs> I lost you at Keurig. <laughs> Yeah. I was just sitting there like, man, what? And then you said, I can feel you judging. And then I was like, oh, you can read my mind. This there you is- go. See, at least I acknowledged it. I, I could feel the I judgment. guess that helps. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, when you're north of 40 like me, and I mean, you just, you stop caring. Um, I think we met, we met once. It was at the Gospel Coalition of Memory Serves a few years ago. Um, but we're also connected on Twitter, which it's, that's the most meaningful you know, yep. human connection, um, maybe yeah. not, not as close as family or something, but pretty important. Um, but yeah, and I've told you before, I, I loved your book, Disruptive Witness. I just thought it was, and it's interesting because it's an evangelism book, right? I mean, it's, um, you don't use that word maybe, you know, in the title or anything, but I love the section where you're talking about, um, basically to paraphrase you and maybe butcher it a little bit, you talk about, it's not enough to throw seeds, you know? that you have to plow. <laughs> and and right. here's here's a quote from the introduction. You said, unlike um, the gentle act of sowing seeds, a plow's work is violent, disruptive, and exhausting. It unsettles the ground. It softens by tearing up. Uh, and then I'm skipping ahead a little here. The hard surface has been broken to reveal the vulnerable but fertile womb of the earth. So for listeners who haven't read the book, can you explain what you mean by what what's the hard ground in that um, situation, and, and how can we plow it? How can we disrupt it? 
So the way I'm trying to explore it here is that that uh, the, the way contemporary people think, the way specifically they conceive of things like God and the transcendent and faith and religion is very resistant. In the, in the book, I, I think I talk about different uh, barriers or buffers to, to belief that are uh, set up, not usually not intentionally. Uh, so it's very much like the ground. It just, it's just that way. Uh, uh, individuals don't go out to have this resistance necessarily, but um, the structure of our society, the myths and stories that we tell in our society, the norms that govern us, um, make it so that we have a very difficult time conceiving of a living, loving, personal God. Uh, mm. as a as a real being uh, as a as an idea which helps us in sort of a you know a self-help kind of a way we can do that but but to, to conceive of it as as something real and transcendent uh, you have to chip away you have to chip away at the earth because um, uh, and the concern that kind of drove this book was the, the possibility that when I when I uh, have conversations with non-christians and I use uh, language about f sin and redemption and faith and prayer and God and church, they're hearing me, they're interpreting me because of this barrier, because of their conditioning, they're interpreting me as talking about a lifestyle option that's available to them, but purely mm. optional. Whereas I intend it to be, this is the way reality is, and I want to invite you into this and peel back that veil so that you can have life and life abundantly. And so the fear is that we're scattering these seeds on this ground and the ground is resistant and we're just kind of not even aware of it. And so uh, the, the thesis then is that, okay, well, we're going to need to do some work to dig up, to unsettle people, to disturb, uh, not disturb, uh, but, but, but to, yeah, disrupt is, you know, the, the title, um, so that they can hear things with fresh ears Mm. This has always been a problem. I mean, this is why Lewis wrote, uh, you know, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is that that he felt like the gospel presentation had become uh, uh, stale in some sense. People had heard it so many times, it needed to be presented in a in a different format containing the same meaning. Um, and uh, so in the book, I'm not advocating writing stories, although I think that could work quite well, actually. But um, but But instead, inviting people to see how... Uh, how they make assumptions about the world. And, and also in the book, the second half, I talk a lot about uh, these natural moments in our lives that disrupt us, that make us, that break up that ground. Um, mm. So uh, moments of great beauty, of great joy, of sorrow, of mourning, of death. There are these moments in our lives where all of a sudden things seem realer and we're more open to... Um, I would say to reality as it is. We're not caught up in the buzz of our lives, rushing around, um, buffered and barriered from uh, the gospel. And so, part of what I do ad advocate for in the second half is uh, inviting people into those moments as opposed to running from them, which is sort of our modern uh, therapeutic method of dealing with 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 things. Ain't that the truth? Wow. Yes. And and I found the book so insightful when it came to thinking about how I how I talked to unbelievers, uh, non-Christians and, and, and made so much sense of why 
some of the language that we use is just incomprehensible or just you're talking past them. Um, and then also it's a personal challenge uh, because I'm going to read a section too where you talk about um, how we distract ourselves basically at all times. And, that, and this really resonated with me. You write, the person I'm most uncomfortable being alone with is myself. And that's okay because I've become very good at avoiding myself. For example, if I'm stuck alone in an elevator and I start to feel that anxiety, uh, the the dread of having to um, example my life even or examine my life even for a minute, I just take out my phone and poof, it's gone. <laughs> um, and I think that is so relatable and it's and we're inundated with distractions and with media and entertainment and podcasts. I, I hesitate to say it because obviously we're on one right now. Um, but what's the ultimate danger though in doing that? Because um, it's so easy just to keep, keep the, the AirPods or whatever it is in and just have, have stuff pumping into your head at all times. What do we lose when we maintain that level of distraction? There's, there's so many uh, spiritual, um, cognitive, um, philosophical, psychological dangers involved. I mean, so for example, for one thing, uh, if you are constantly distracted and there's no time for reflection and contemplation, then it is very, e you're more susceptible to manipulation by, you know, ads or political parties or, or whatever, because you don't have that space to distance yourself from the input that you're getting, the ads claim, the politician's argument, whatever it might be. You don't have that distance. You're, everything is immediate to you. Everything is right mm. now and constant. So there's that danger. That's just uh, that um, regardless of the sort of religious dimension, that's, that's for everyone. I think particularly for Christians, you know, we're a faith that requires reflection. And this has been yeah. a part of our tradition from the beginning is, you know, Jesus is going off by himself uh, to spend time with God. So, meditation, contemplation, examination of our souls. If you can't see that you're a sinner, and not just theoretically, but viscerally, if you can't see that, if you can never get to the place where you're contrite, uh, you can't ask for forgiveness. And mm. um, how are you going to be uh, growing uh, in your Christ-likeness if, if you're perpetually going you're perpetually connected, perpetually doing one thing after another. And certainly you might sneak in a prayer here or there, but um, when you have to be alone with yourself for a while, uh, when you allow yourself space in life to think, uh, uh, it's, it, it, th those are great times for spiritual growth and maturity, I, I think. Yeah, um, isn't that yeah. the truth? And yet it's uncomfortable, as you point out, to, to kind of be alone with your thoughts and and face some of these big questions, big unsettling questions. And yet you're absolutely right. It's essential. Yeah. Not only psychologically, but spiritually. Uh, I want to ask you, this is sort of, I don't know, this is totally related to the topic of your book, but I think a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about deconstruction just because it's such a big topic of conversation right now. So for, for people who haven't heard this term, at least the way it's being used currently in regards to um, Christian faith is that often people maybe in their young adult years, maybe even when they're older, will undergo this process of, of deconstruction where they start to really critically examine their faith and maybe strip back certain elements of it uh, and maybe question it altogether uh, and potentially end up walking away. Um, when, so I'm curious, Alan, when, you, when someone comes to you uh, or they announce that they're going through a phase like this of deconstruction, 
Uh, how do you react? What, what's kind of the best way to respond to someone like that? Yes. Yeah, so I would probably say that, that I would want to get them down to the essentials. I wanted to get them down to what they can know and be confident in. And um, there is a, a, a spirit of critique that's a, it's a very modern posture where we yeah. are highly skeptical of, of, of everything, right? And so, uh, and this is, so it, it's interesting. You said when you talked about, you introduced the term deconstruction, you said, you know, the way it's being used you know, right now in this popular discourse. But it is related to the philosophical uh, idea of deconstructionism, which, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which has to do with this, this, this concept of, of always being able to defer, always being able to break things down, always being able to show uh, the contradictions built into systems and ideas. Now, the danger in that spirit is that it's an entirely uh, negative spirit. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mode of skepticism and cynicism and bitterness that, that just tears down. Hmm. Um, now, uh, having, you know, grown up in the evangelical churches since a, since a child, it's, I think, I think, uh, for someone like me, it's impossible to look back at my experiences and, and even look at the contemporary leaders or the leaders I looked up to as a teenager and think, everything's fine. There's nothing that we need to like, Hey, we're doing great. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's painfully obvious that some, that, you know, um, that some building needs to be done. Um, T.S. Eliot says in, in, uh, uh, one of his poems that the church is forever decaying, uh, within and attacked from without. But, but he also says that the church is always being torn down and it's always being built. And mm. um, that that seems true to me. That seems absolutely true. That 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 there are a lot of things that we have to look at: structures, institutions, bad theologies, bad systems, bad views of art, the media, culture, politics, that need to be addressed and critiqued. But there has to be hope for uh, something uh, beyond that. And. I guess what I would try to do would be to try to ground that person in uh, more basic and ancient um, essential truths of the faith, things like the Nicene Creed, Um, Mm. uh, because we can get so caught up in the contemporary discourse, so caught up in like, what do all these evangelical institutions that I grew up with, how did they screw me over or how did they confuse me or, you know, cause problems in my life or make me think about things in, you know, toxic ways. And sometimes that's really true, but this is just a speck in time. Right. And it's so important to be grounded and recognize, okay, this is going to pass. So what is it that I believe? What is it that I believe for eternity and how do I know? Um, because then I think, then I think the impulse to critique doesn't go away. It can stay valid, but the urgency can get turned down and and you can feel like, okay, it is not my faith or no faith. If I don't get this figured out all right, right now, um, I'm a part of something that has stood the the test of time. Um, we can work through this. I don't need to be frantic or anxious about what's coming next. I like that. I think it helps people avoid the sort of false alternatives uh, fallacy that they can fall into where if they discover things that, especially in the child, their childhood faith that were weird or toxic, um, that they have to kind of throw the whole thing out, right? Um, 
And like you alluded to, obviously, um, some of those things are true. But I think for a lot of people, they, they are trying to strip back some of those uh, cultural features. And a lot of them have nothing to do, uh, frankly, with certainly, you know, just the what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, the kind of like essential beliefs of the faith. It, it's something about the, their particular subculture that they grew up in um, and that nonetheless can can really present difficult questions for them. Uh, but helping them kind of tease those things out is is huge. And like you said, to take a more historic kind of big picture view uh, of the faith rather than define it all by their uh, particular experience, which I realize is easier said than done. And also, I mean, I came across the term deconstruction. Uh, you know, I was a, a undergrad. I was an English major and and studying literary criticism, you know, and it was right. this idea of, of, it, of looking at the inherent tensions um, in a text, right, and, and seeing how how it was constructed, how it was put together. And yeah, there was, there, it, it definitely has um, a sort of uh, critical uh, stance towards things in reality. Uh, but it, sometimes that can be good, right? Sometimes you need to take that, that critical look at things. Um, uh, so I, I have a lot of sympathy for people going through that, but that's a good word. Um, I want to talk too about uh, uh, the writing process. That's what this podcast is about as well not just books and ideas, but actual writing. And I loved, you know, I saw online as you were writing your last book, um, you were just uh, in despair, agony. I don't know what the word is. Uh, <laughs> I loved how honest you were <laughs> just about how difficult it was. You'd say things like, okay, writing a book is impossible. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that process because obviously you made it to the other side. So, you know, how, what was so hard? How are you feeling now? It does. It does feel impossible. Uh, so this is, if you count my dissertation, which is book length, this is the third time I've completed a book. And uh, each time it's when you're in the middle of it, or even near the end, it feels like this is, this is impossible. I think f for me, one of the challenges is that uh, ideas are so big and you have to have the entire idea in your mind. You have to hold it in your mind, the entire massive argument in your mind and all the pieces and all the paragraphs and sentences and chapters. Like It has to make sense in your head. And you get lost because you keep doing research and you realize, well, this piece I put in chapter five can belong in chapter four. And <laughs> do I set up chapter five properly in chapter you know, three? Uh, and that's that's why it can feel overwhelming. I mean, that's one of the reasons it can feel overwhelming. It, it, it feels like, uh, first of all, I can never finish doing research. Uh, sure. And um, even today, I was looking at my bookshelf for uh, for for a class, and I picked up several books, and I was like, oh, I I should have read and cited those. Oh, <laughs> cool, that's great. Uh, oh well, just too late now. On. Too late now. Um, and so that's this process of, you know, just knowing that it's not going to be the good thing that you want it to be. I mean, it might be good. It might be good. But, but um, you know, you can see the flaws. You can, you can, you, you see them and it's, it's aggravating. And at a certain point, you can't keep pushing your publisher back. They, they, <laughs> they want to publish the book. You know, you got to just submit it. And turn it in. So that's a source of anxiety. Uh, there's also the fact that everybody's, I mean, there's so much, so many ideas out there, so many ideas out there. And uh, I don't want to write something that isn't meaningful, that mm -hmm. uh, isn't contributing in a meaningful way, because there are some books that, that are fine, but um, 
they don't, they're not moving the needle. They're not necessary. And, uh, and that's, that's okay. In fact, they help certain demographics. And I think that's, that's great. But, uh, part of my anxiety is, all right, am, am I doing something that, that matters or am I, is this just ego, right? Am I just, am I just writing for the sake of writing and to sell books or am I doing something that, that has, you know, eternal, eternal value? So those are all anxieties. Another anxiety is that I, I'll just keep going. This, this is the rest of the podcast, guys. So just I love hold it. On. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So um, part of what I try to do is uh, work with with scholarly uh, uh, with scholars and bring their ideas down so that it's accessible. So that was definitely disruptive witness. Yes. I was working with Charles Taylor and a number of other scholars and trying to make it accessible so that um, the real, rich, and valuable and true insights that he offers can be available to people who sit behind me in the pew, not just Mm -hmm. to people who are in elite universities or whatever. Now, uh, one of the anxieties there is, uh, okay, am I, am I accurately communicating these ideas? I mean, they're, the ideas are complex and they're original texts for a reason because they're complicated. (laughs) So am I faithfully conveying this? Does it make sense? Um, and, and on the flip side, am I, is this actually accessible? Because I've read books that try to do things like this and they're trying to be for the lay reader or the, you know, the general reader. And, and I pick them up and I think I, maybe a high school or a college senior or a grad student could pick this up, but I don't, I don't actually think this is for the average reader. And, uh, and I don't want to write that too. Um, so those are, um, you know, yeah, those are, those are all the, the things. Yeah, that, no, that and you me. can't see my face right now, but I was nodding uh, vigorously the whole time because you feel all those when you write a book. And uh, my next question actually was about something you just already addressed. And that is you know, one thing I love about your writing is that you're a popularizer, right? And, and I don't mean you're popular, although you're popular, but you know what I mean? Uh, popularizer <laughs> in the sense that you, <laughs> you're an academic and yet your writing is accessible um, you are presenting these these kind of highfalutin ideas, uh, translating ideas from folks like the the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor and others, um, but doing it in a way, like you said, that that the average Christian and and I don't know who's the average Christian, right? It's hard to say. Right. Uh, it, it may not be the kind of person that's like reading Amish romance or something. Nothing against Amish romance, um, <laughs> but <laughs> so yeah, it, it may be that college educated Christian, let's just say that, but you don't have to be a specialist and understand all the, the, the jargon of philosophy. Right. And I, and by the way, I totally get that challenge too, because as you're writing things like this, I'd imagine you're, um, you're, you're, you're picturing, um, the academics reading it and like, oh man, are they going to cringe and think I'm just yeah. butchering this and oversimplifying, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to do that to some degree. And, and when you simplify, you inevitably, change it a little bit um, because you do want to reach that person who's, who's not a specialist. Um, and so, yeah, I was going to ask you if that's a conscious goal, but it sounds like you are thinking about that. You're not just some guy who, okay, you kind of have a popular vibe to your writing. You are really trying to distill, boil ideas down in a way that the, the other Christians that are not academics can understand. Yeah, that's the reason, you know, I mentioned earlier this, this, this question, am I, is there a reason for me to write? Am I just doing this for ego or is there, is there a purpose? And, uh, for all of my writing on, you know, essays, articles, and, and, and books, that's been the driving, 
theme is that I I want to I want regular people to be able to read this and benefit and be edified by it because otherwise I'm just there's there's not really a whole uh, much of a point. I've I've done some academic writing. I've published some articles and you know in a book book chapter and academic uh, works and and I know that ten people are going to read them and um, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But man, when I think about these large ideas that affect you know the freshman students I'm dealing with and and you know the my neighbors. That's the people that I want to be able to present a book to uh, with the wisdom and insight from, you know, scholars and experts and, and actually help them, uh, which is not, which is not always, which is not always easy. Yeah. And, and as you said, you know, you, you end up anxious about the, the actual scholars reading it. I, I can't help, you know, every time I talk to my friends, you know, who, who are, Professors are very well read about this book. I, I I felt like saying, "Hey guys, look, uh, when this comes out, you're going to be bored because <laughs> you've you've read all of these twenty books that uh, I'm working with, so you've made these connections yourself. I, um, but you can give this to your cousin or your uncle right. or your neighbor, and and that'll be good for them. But um, and there's a pride thing there too because a part of me wants to feel like. Um, you know, are they going to think, oh, here's Alan with this, you know, the, you know, this, this is all obvious, Alan, why did you even write this? <laughs> I'm like, well, yes, you're right. You're right. But my neighbor isn't going to read, um, Jackie Lule, for example, who I use a lot with my next book. Uh, he's just mm. not going to read that. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to, he shouldn't, uh, most people shouldn't read Charles Taylor. It's, you know, he writes <laughs> 800 page books. Doorstoppers. Not, yeah. yeah. It's not necessary. <laughs> Don't read it. So, yeah, yeah. no. And I think it's such a worthwhile enterprise um, because it does. It introduces these people to ideas uh, that otherwise they probably wouldn't encounter. And they are ideas that that do shape them, shape the world and that are important. Uh, Let's talk a little bit. um, We're kind of coming coming towards the end here. Uh, Man, it's gone fast. But let's talk a little bit about self-promotion. So you you um, you'll make a lot of jokes online about being an influencer. Uh, (laughs) And I realize in, for people that, you know, aren't on Twitter and, and follow Alan, these are jokes that he's making, you know, like these kind of like over the top grandiose claims about being an awesome influencer and inviting sponsors and stuff. And yet, and it's just funny. And yet I think maybe it, it hints at a little ambivalence towards this, this terrible, but necessary enterprise of promoting one's own work. Um, I'm curious, what would you say to like, say a first time author um, who's got a book coming out and and they realize, okay, I got to get out there, got to get the word out. How do you promote yourself without losing your soul? So the number one thing is don't take yourself seriously. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's incredibly important. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's incredibly important. You've, you've got to be able to uh, laugh at yourself and you've got to be able to point, uh, poke fun at the absurdity of all of it. And and even if you don't like, you know, not everyone has to be making jokes all the time. I'm not saying that, but I, but I will say, I'm not going to name any names. Anyways, uh, there are, there are some people who, you know, part of their job is, is self-promotion and everything they do seems so well crafted and branded. And, uh, you know, their pictures are so neat with these captions and it just feels, I just think like you really sat down and you thought, man, I look good in this photo. I'm going to put this quote by myself on it. And then I'm going to post it on social media. And 
Like, did, did, doesn't that feel weird at all? And so I think, right. I, I think there, are, there, are, there are things. It's successful though. That's the problem. Is like it works. Right. It but works. I, so if first time writer, I would say don't do this. Okay. So don't take yourself too seriously. But the other mm. thing is. Um, I think as writers, uh, we need to be focused on the good that we are doing. So d- do you really believe that this book has some good? Now, now maybe, maybe you don't think you accomplished it, right? So this book I just finished writing, I'm not sure I pulled it off, but I, I completely believe that the thesis, the ideas are true and meaningful and helpful to people. Maybe somebody else needs to come along and rewrite you know, write a different version of the book, which happens all the time, and and right. do it better. That's fine, but but I do believe that this is a good thing. That this is helpful for people. So, what I'm doing, um, I, I've talked to somebody about this recently. Is is um, is not think of, is trying not to think about myself. Uh, frankly, yeah. so um, the what I'm doing, what I'm trying to think about when I'm promoting is. Saying, uh, this is this is me trying to help you get some good. If I really believe that this book is good and it's good for the reader, uh, I want them to know about it. And it's not right. egotistical. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can just me be me. It can be me saying, um, "There's something important here. Please read mm-hmm. it. Please consider this. I think this is good for you." Um, and for me, that takes a load off because whenever I'm get an opportunity to write, when, and when I think about the fact that you know I've, I'm going to be publishing, I'll, I'll have two books published by the end of the year, you know, and, and um, I mean this will be my second book, and 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 then I when I get opportunities to talk in front of in front of people, if I stop and think. Am I really qualified to do this, <laughs> or like, am I qualified to stand in front of a class of college students and teach uh, teach a novel? If I ask that question, I'm done. Yeah, like, I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> doubting myself, and I'm just. But what I've had to learn is that that question doesn't matter. If I'm given mm. an opportunity, if God gives me an opportunity, uh, and I know of some good that I can do. So there's there's some in teaching, in speaking, in writing. If there's some good that I can communicate, then my job before God is just to do that and to do my best to get that out there. And um, if it flops, then that's you know that's whatever. I mean, then I just improve and you know keep trying. But yeah. but I also don't need to think about it as in terms of ego. Like it's not tied to my personhood. It's just my duty right now. That's that's crucial uh, because I've seen kind of a stance that looks like humility where people say, yeah, I don't promote my work. You know, maybe I, I wrote a book, but I'm not even going to get out there and mention it because I don't want it to be about me. And then it's like, well, dude, it's not about you. It's about the message of the book. And like you said, if you believe in it and you want people to encounter it, you got to spread the word. And of course, there's an egotistical, selfish way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, if, 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 I mean, did you believe in the book when you wrote it? Yeah, certainly. And, and then you got to get the word out. Um, so I think that's, that's the, the central idea is that you need to kind of separate the work from yourself easier said than done, but so important. Um, well, I think we're, yeah, we're, we're towards the end here, but man, listeners, I just want to urge you to check out Alan's work. Um, Disruptive Witness, like I said, is just an awesome book. So insightful, uh, especially if you just want to understand the current cultural climate that we're in uh, and how to talk to people, uh, especially if you're thinking of like talking to 
younger adults about matters of faith. I just found it so helpful for that. It's just really excellent. And then watch for his forthcoming book, You Are Not Your Own. Um, I would also encourage you to follow him on Twitter. He's he's hilarious. Uh, not as funny as me, but, you know, someone has to be second place. Sorry, Alan. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, I want to encourage you to leave us a rating or review. There's the self-promotion. There it is right there. It's not about me, though. It's about the podcast. It's about getting the message out uh, on Apple or Google podcasts. Um, also, I just want to add a personal note here at the end I was thinking about today. Uh, this week, I lost my grandpa, Merle. And it, you know, this isn't a sad thing. I mean, it always is a little sad when you lose someone, but my grandpa was 101 years old. And so, and he had lived this awesome life. He was a pastor for 40 plus years, super godly guy. And I'm just so grateful for his example and everything that, that he taught me and, and my relationship with him. One thing I loved about my grandpa is that he was a voracious reader. I mean, right to the end, like whenever I'd come over and see him, he'd like have a big fat, usually a theology book spread open on his lap or the Bible. Um, and it was funny because in the last uh, few weeks of his life here, he he told my mom he was worried that people were going to fight over uh, who gets his commentaries when he dies. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, mom, don't, don't tell him that no one will want them except for me, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just what I loved about that is that he he had this lifelong commitment to keep reading, keep learning specifically about God, and I could just see how it played a central role in his lifelong passion to serve the church, to love Jesus, to love others. And man, that's that's a goal I have for my life. That's my prayer for anyone listening that we would be people who who read, but not just read for entertainment, although there's value to that too. But as we read about God specifically, we'll become those those books, the, the things that we read um, will become conduits to lifelong transformation and growth. So thank you, Grandpa, for teaching me that. I'll miss you. Love you. Um, and to everyone listening, thanks again for listening. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and until next time, keep reading and keep writing. <laughs>